Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the All's Well podcast. This is Matt. And Catherine. And Rory. Today, we're going on a journey to the mid-Atlantic coast to talk about how fisheries policy and vaccines are affecting the fate of an endangered species, specifically an endangered shorebird called the red knot. These birds are found all over the world and are divided into several subspecies. We're mostly focusing on one subspecies called Rufa that lives in the Americas. They make amazing migrations from their wintering grounds in South America over 19,000 miles to their breeding grounds in Greenland and the Canadian Arctic. Along the way, they make periodic stops to rest and refuel. These stops are critical to ensure a successful migration. And human pressures at these stops are considered one of the major reasons that the population of red knots has declined 87% since 2000. This has led to their listing under the Endangered Species Act in 2014. The story of the red knots and their decline is also tied to the story of another Atlantic critter, the Atlantic horseshoe crab. Horseshoe crabs are aquatic arachnids and are more closely related to spiders and scorpions than to crabs. They spawn and release eggs in large numbers in the spring, and these eggs are a major food source for red knots. But horseshoe crabs are also harvested for bait in commercial fisheries and harvested for their blood, which is used by the pharmaceutical industry, including the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. Our guest this episode is Dr. David Mizrahi, who is Vice President of the Research and Monitoring at the New Jersey Audubon. In addition, he's one of the founders of the Horseshoe Crab Recovery Coalition. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much. Our first question today is, I want to know a little bit about your work with the New Jersey Audubon and how you came to start the Horseshoe Crab Recovery Coalition. Okay, so... Um, My official title at New Jersey Audubon is Vice President for Research and Monitoring. And I've been doing research and conservation work on migratory shorebirds for almost 30 years now. Uh, I came to New Jersey Audubon in 2000, and I continued the work on on the ecology um, and behavior of migratory shorebirds that I worked on during my dissertation at Clemson University. and the focus of the the initial focus of the work uh, in New Jersey was the Delaware Bay because the Delaware Bay is one of the premier stopover locations for migratory shorebirds as they travel from their wintering areas in the tropics and in the southern uh, temperate latitudes to the Arctic. Um, as you mentioned, the stop the stopover periods are really critical for shorebirds when they make these very long uh, uh, flights and a lot those long flights are usually non-stop flights of distances that could be in the thousands of miles uh, in in one flight so they're really they're really hungry and tired when they're when they're when they come to those stopping locations and so we I was really interested in in the ecology and behavior during the time that birds were stopping and a lot of the work that I do at New Jersey Audubon focuses on on Delaware Bay um, because it is one of the premier stopovers for shorebirds uh, and in particular red knots. 
Sounds like shorebirds have to do a lot of work to make those travels. Um, so it looks like there's been a lot going on at the Atlantic States, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission around horseshoe crabs over the last year surrounding harvesting for bait. Um, could you give us a brief overview of what's been going on and how the Horseshoe Crab Recovery Coalition and Audubon have been involved? So the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is an agency. It's not a government agency per se. It is a an aggregation of uh, state representatives that provide guidelines for a, about 25 different uh, marine species, uh, fish and and uh, invertebrate species that are harvested commercially. Um, and horseshoe crabs is are. Uh, or one of the species, one of the species that it manages, um, and like you said uh, in your introduction, they're harvested for two purposes: one to provide bait for, to catch other marine organisms, and the other is to um, extract blood that's used to uh, produce a bacterial endotoxin used to test pharmaceutical drugs and other medical devices that may be implanted into a human body, and they it's used to to, again, to test for bacteria so that you reduce issues of sepsis or infection caused by those drugs. So the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has been, has imposed, well, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission imposed a quota on the harvest of horseshoe crabs uh, around 2002 when it was clear that horseshoe crab populations were declining precipitously. And this was a result of an over over harvesting for, uh, over approximately six to eight years, starting in the mid 1990s. And it was basically an unregulated fishery, meaning there was no harvest quotas and there was no reporting. Um, and it was clear that this was having a, an adverse effect on migratory shorebirds and their ability to gain weight during the time that they're stopping in Delaware Bay. That's the, that's the, the important aspect of the Delaware Bay and a lot of other stopover sites. They arrive, the birds arrive after traveling long distances, nonstop. They need to feed, replenish their energy stores. They need to rest. And so that they can make the, the next part of their journey. And from Delaware Bay, the, the last leg of it's the last leg of their journey to the Arctic to where they'll breed. So in the early 2000s, we started to see a real change in the ability of birds to gain weight, um, especially those species that were feeding primarily on horseshoe crab eggs. And over a period of years, the the AS the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, I'm going to say ASMFC because it's easier. And hopefully our, uh, your listeners will remember the acronym. Um, they uh, maintained this quota, but in um, 2000, approximately 2008, they started to talk about an adaptive resource management framework that would allow for the harvest of horseshoe crabs in light of, the fa of their importance to migratory shorebirds. And so they developed what we what we currently call the ARM framework, and that's that that basically was adopted in 2012 with a lot of input from from many stakeholders, including New Jersey Audubon. Um, and that framework has ha, is in part a, pro, a modeling process to look at 
the uh, population of horseshoe crabs based on a number of different data collection uh, efforts, a, tr a trawl survey conducted by Virginia uh, Tech and others, and also the status of, of red knots and their ability to gain weight. And those elements get them put into a sophisticated sort of Bayesian, fr Bayesian framework that produces um, information that allows the ASMSC to set a quota. And that's been in place for approximately 10 years. In, uh, in January of 2022, the ASMFC and their Horseshoe Crab Technical Committee and their Adaptive Resource Management Framework Committees decided that it was time to change the modeling framework. And there was great concern from the conservation community, at least the conservation community that focuses their attention on migratory shorebirds and red knots. Um, primarily because the, the, there, there was no stakeholder input into the process of, of reformulating the modeling effort or the, the, the approaches to the modeling as, as it was in the, uh, the original iteration of the ARM framework. Um, there were a lot of unanswered questions about the assumptions of the model, uh, various types of analyses that you would do to, to test the, the, the validity and veracity of the model. So things like sensitivity analysis uh, that would test how the different elements that are used in the, in the output to, to feed the model, to generate outputs, how changing those parameters, those, those elements affect the performance of the model and the, and the uh, results that, that the model produces. And, 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 and most importantly, the, the new modeling framework would for the first time in 10 years allow for a harvest of female horseshoe crabs. And this was the, that's the punchline. Um, and so that, that created a, a lot of concern from, uh, you know, shorebird ecologists, conservation, uh, NGOs, uh, any, a, 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 a lot of different people were, the general public was, uh, was outraged. Um, the Horseshoe Crab Recovery Coalition, uh, you mentioned that I was, uh, I was a co-founder and I think in your first question, you asked me to, to elaborate on that, and I didn't, so I apologize. Um, that was really formed. That coalition was really formulated to address issues related to horseshoe crabs because uh, uh, the their harvest has such a dramatic impact and an important factor in the the viability of shorebird populations that pass through Delaware Bay. So the coalition got got involved in in you know petitioning the ASMFC not to move forward with the revised adaptive resource management framework. Um, and I think the rest is history. The ASMFC adopted the, the new modeling framework, which I think is still uh, in question. So, uh, Earth Justice, which is an environmental law firm that operates on behalf of, of different conservation organizations to to put forward, um, you know, positions about uh, the situations affecting uh, protected uh, species. Um, 
they, on behalf of New Jersey Audubon and Defenders of Wildlife, put together a team of, of scientists, population ecologists, fisheries managers, to review that revised adaptive resource management framework and produced a lengthy treatise on some of the fundamental flaws in the new modeling approach. So what we're hoping is that although the the ASMFC decided to adopt the, the new modeling framework, that our input will help to improve that modeling framework such that there's greater confidence from other stakeholders in that model and its ability to generate estimates of horseshoe crab populations and and how that will in turn affect red knots and and, and then finally what that means in terms of a harvest quota now just to be clear the harvest quota is only um, effective in in the context of harvesting horseshoe crabs for bait the biomedical industry is not regulated through the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Yeah, and it sounds like, um, you know, they adopted this new plan, but they did delay um, or or not allow kind of the harvesting of any female horseshoe crabs from what from what I was reading. But it, but as you're saying, it sounds like there's still a lot of conflict over some of the modeling parameters. Um, one thing that I was reading was kind of just differences of opinion over whether like egg density or crab abundance should be kind of the, the, some of the primary factors um, driving some of the model parameters. Um, could you talk a little bit about ways that you think the model could be improved given your kind of background in research and monitoring? Yeah. So th thanks for, for, pointing out that the the big win from from the perspective of the conservation groups was that that although they did adopt the model the new modeling framework that they they sort of delayed a decision about harvesting females at least for a year they can take that in into consideration and um and adopt a a, a quota that would include females if their models would suggest that but the outcry from, I mean, 34,000 comments came into the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. That's, I'm sure, more than they've entertained for any, for, combined for all the fisheries that they manage. So back to your question. Uh, for, for, for us, egg density is like the, is the currency that's most important for shorebirds. And... Horseshoe crab populations abundance is uh, uh, is certainly a potential indicator of what you might expect for egg densities um, that would be available for shorebirds, but it isn't always. And there's there there's there's sort of like a threshold um, under which eggs are not eggs are not available. So let me give you just a quick quick um, background on horseshoe crab spawning. So uh, you know, during the month of May and, and, and probably at least into the first half of June, horseshoe crabs come up on the beach to spawn. Now, the most spawning occurs during full and, and new moons when the tides are highest. It means the crabs can get higher up onto the beach to to create their nests. 
and they they nest very much like marine turtles. That is, the female comes up on the well, at least in, with respect to the way females behave. They come up on the beach. They they use their their legs to to dig a hole in the, in the sand, and they start to lay their eggs. And then the groups of males, you know, sort of, you know, wrestle for position around the female, and then release sperm to fertilize the eggs. So that's that's the process. Now, typically, those nests are are those eggs are deposited somewhere between twelve and fifteen centimeters under the sand, and that's too deep for any shorebird to reach. So, what you need is is sort of perturbations in that in that. Uh, beachfront such that it brings eggs to the surface. And that perturbation is usually caused by female crab, um, more crabs coming up on the beach on, on sub- subsequent nights or in subsequent weeks and dig and making their nests in the same place that the females during a previous spawning event made their nests. And that tends to loosen the eggs and that uh, in, on top of the, the uh, daily Tidal action, you know, tides coming in and out, sort of brings eggs to the surface, and that's what becomes available for birds. Now, if horseshoe crab populations are are low, then the number of of individuals that are participating in these uh, repeated spawning events is not great enough to to create that perturbation of the of those nests and bring eggs to the surface. So in the old days, uh, before over-harvesting took place, you basically starting, you know, in late April, uh, you know, early May, all the way through the end of June, you would have horseshoe crabs spawning on every high tide. It didn't wasn't sort of constrained to the new moon and full moon. You'd have crabs coming up on every tide. And, you know, in probably starting in about 2006, we saw a very different scenario where most of the spawning was taking place only during the new and full moons. And we know now that, that the predominant, the animals that are sort of dominant during those full and new moon parts of the lunar cycle are mature adults that have spawned many times before. And the, the animals that, maybe making their first attempts at spawning are the ones that sort of, you know, say, Hey, I just got to get up on the beach and spawn. So, you know, I may not be able to, to compete with, you know, larger, more experienced animals, but that was the scenario. You used to have spawning every, every day. Now that's changed because populations are, are, are so much lower than they were back in the late eighties and early nineties that, you just don't see that spawning. You don't have a lot of young young animals being recruited in the population. You don't have these repeated spawning events uh, every day during high tides, and so you don't get eggs released. And that's then that becomes an issue for for shorebirds. And this is why we think the eggs are the most important aspect of it, because the the, the adaptive resource management framework is really designed to manage horseshoe crab populations such that they don't have they they have a benefit to shorebirds. This is it's the only 
fishery that is managed as a dual with with two species, one of which is not a marine species. And so there's been a lot of arm wrestling about this at the ASMFC about what, why, why egg egg density should be the the currency that we use, and and others that think that it's it's not a valid metric to use. And I think that that'll continue for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, thank you so much. Um... I think kind of going back with the ASMF um, C and the de- current decision um, from the reading I've done, it looks like there has been a lot of um, public participation during the comment period. Um, you said something like 34,000 comments were submitted. Um, I was wondering how important was public participation in this process and how did the horseshoe crab recovery coalition get people involved in the process? Well, that's a good question. I think it had a tremendous effect. Um, although it was, it was dismissed out of hand uh, initially by, you know, people in the inner circles of the, uh, the adaptive resource management technical committee and some others, you know, these are just, you know, ro- robo comments and, you know, people sort of taking a, a sort of a boilerplate comment letter and putting their name on it. It didn't really mean all that much. But at the uh, at the in-person meeting that was held in New Jersey, a couple of the members of the Horseshoe Crab Management Board acknowledged that that public opinion had had some uh, effect on their decision not to open the harvest for females because they they anticipated the backlash would be so great that it would be difficult to manage i i'm I, I they never said it quite that way but that was implied uh, i think the direct quote from one of the course crab management board members was we don't want to poke the bear so um, the Horse Crab Recovery Coalition has now 50 organizations. They range from conservation NGOs that focus on birds, conservation NGOs that are focused on, on fisheries, on all kinds of wildlife. Um, they include uh, people from the pharmaceutical industry um, and uh, authors and writers that are that are folk that focus on conservation of species. So it's a it, it sort of runs a gamut of interested parties, and you know you have fifty organizations, and each of those organizations have constituencies. And so we engage the co- our coalition partners. You know we provide them with information, we provide them with with bullet points that might be important to include in in comments. We always urge them not to sort of copy them verbatim and put them in their letters. And and then we asked them to really, you know, use, using their own media channels, social or otherwise, you know, get their constituents engaged and and have them reach out to to directly through to the ASMFC or through their state representatives on the horseshoe crab management board because each state has a representative on the management board 
of each of the fisheries that the ASMFC manages. And so direct outreach, you know, could be an effective tool as well. So, you know, that resulted in 34,000 comments coming into the ASMFC. So I think it had a tremendous effect. I mean, the, the coalition works on these policy issues that related to the bait harvest, but it also works on issues related to the harvest of crabs for their very valuable blue blood. Thanks, David. It's it's encouraging to know that the coalition has such an impact. And um, relatedly, you know, talking about the harvest of horseshoe crabs, um, we know that their blood is used in vaccines, but that there are also synthetic alternatives that have been developed. So we're wondering, what are some of the main barriers to switching? And how could we or our listeners get involved in finding a balance for conserving these species? That's a good question. I'll, I'll hark back to to a little history. The pharmaceutical industry has been testing their products for decades and decades to ensure the safety of those products used by the the public. And 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 in terms of testing them for bacterial endotoxins, um, those are done exclusively for drugs that are entered in, that enter into the blood bloodstream directly like injectable drugs or things like intravenous fluids delivered to patients in hospitals or uh, the tubing that's used to conduct dialysis or a hip replacement all of those kinds of devices and um, um, drugs and other and saline solutions and things like that are all tested with the derivative of horseshoe crab blood to ensure their safety and that they're free from bacterial endotoxins. That used to be done with rabbits. It used to be called the rabbit test, and lots of rabbits were sacrificed to ensure the safety of drugs and, and medical devices for the for human health and safety. Well, that, you know, it became clear that that there needed to be an alternative but I, I think if if the discovery that horseshoe crab blood had this property of detecting bacterial endotoxins hadn't been discovered, we may still be using rabbits to test the safety of these of these drugs and devices. And in the case of 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 COVID vaccines, horseshoe crab blood was instrumental in testing the 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 production lines of those vaccines to ensure that when you went to get your vaccine, you didn't all, you weren't uh, infected by some bacteria and then ended up sick or dying from that, from that bacteria and not COVID. Um, as you mentioned, there's a synthetic alternative and it's called re recombinant factor C. It is use, it uses recombinant technology very much like the kind of technology that's used to produce COVID vaccines, at least the ones by the major producers, which are mRNA-based um, vaccines. The production is based on mRNA technology, and this is recombinant. This is the same kind of recombinant technology used to to produce recombinant factor C or RFC, as we typically call it. Um, there are impediments to adoption of RFC as an equivalent 
in the United States. However, the United States lags behind in in uh, in the global arena as far as the use of the synthetic. The Europeans have already adopted RFC as an equivalent in their compendium, which is a basically a a uh, a large document that provides guidelines for pharmaceutical companies in the production of their products. Um, in the United States, the governing body that produces the the pharmacopoeia, which is the or the U.S. pharmacopoeia, is is um, has has been reluctant to uh, identify RFC as an equivalent. Uh, although there have been at least thirty studies that demonstrate their equivalency, in my opinion. This has to do with pressure by uh, companies that are producing the reagent uh, derived from horseshoe crab blood. That's called LAL, shorthanded. Lumulus amoebocyte lysate is its full name. And that pressure has had um, significant sway at the U.S. Pharmacopeia and their microbiology expert committee. That's my take. Um and that has resulted in a failure to adopt uh, the RFC as an equivalent in the USP's compendium on bacterial endotoxins. Whereas the Europeans have done it, there's um, the several company com countries in in Southeast Asia, uh, South Korea, Japan, China, India are close to to ad adopting that equivalency. I think India actually refers to the European pharmacopoeia so that if the, that the, that companies in in India manufacturing drugs, pharmaceuticals, bio, uh, biomedical devices could use the European compendium to to uh, justify the use of RFC in their manufacturing. I mean, it's a highly regulated industry, and so there's a there's obviously a lot of the you know a lot of caution when you talk about human health and safety in in an industry that is you know charged with helping to preserve human health and safety through the products that they they develop. Um, but I think I think in the next couple of years we're going to start to see the dominoes fall. The if a pharmaceutical company uses most of their bacterial endotoxin testing to test the water used in the manufacture of their products, ninety percent of all of the uh, of the um, bacterial endotoxin either derived from horseshoe crab blood or the synthetic is is to test water in the manufacture of these products, and there's no there's no guidelines. No company is is actually um, hindered from using the synthetic to test their water. And several companies, I can't I can't really name them at this point, but there are several large pharmaceutical companies that have made commitments to transition. But it takes a, it's not just sort of overnight we decide we're going to use the synthetic, and uh, and tomorrow we can start using it. It means changing a lot of the manufacturing procedures.
because the testing involves different kinds of equipment. So, you know, we're hopeful that, you know, in the next couple of years that'll happen. And we're also hopeful that the U.S. Pharmacopeia will change their position on RFC and move towards equivalency in their compendium. They've just reconstituted a new microbiology uh, expert committee. And and our hope is that that they, those the members of that com- that new committee will be less influenced by the industry that produces bacterial endotoxins from horseshoe crab blood. Do you know whether there's any sort of public comment period in that decision-making process where people could get involved? Well, th- there was, you know, two years ago, the U.S. Pharmacopeia actually had a call for comments on on one, the, their, you know, the, a decision to make the, the synthetic an equivalent in their compendium. Um, and then they had some change that there was, a, you know, that did not get adopted. Then there was a, 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 some other steps that they tried to implement. But at this point, no. I mean, except if you wanted to sort of write your, you know, your senator or congressperson to say we really support the the you know the use of the synthetic because of these reasons there are there are certainly members of congress that are very supportive and have spoken out in their various in the various committees that they sit on i think energy and commerce is one that that takes up some of this um the u.s pharmacopeia is not a government agency and the fda does not regulate recombinant technology and so, in fact, the FDA, if I, if I wanted, if I was a drug company and wanted to manufacture a, a new drug and use the, the synthetic in my production and, and uh, product manufacturer and te- using RFC, I could do that by referring to the European compendium. The FDA allows the use of alternative compendia. U.S. companies have been reluctant to do that, again, because of their concern that the U.S. Pharmacopeia has not sanctioned it, and they don't want to get in the crosshairs of any any potential liability and then have it pointed out that U.S. Pharmacopeia had not adopted it, and so now they're, now they're exposed. Um, so at this point, I'm not sure that the public can be engaged, but certainly... It, you know, folks who are concerned about the issue should do like you guys are doing, you know, stay up on the on the issue and, um, you know, visit our website, the coalition's website. And 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 there's plenty of information there about the pharmaceutical side of horseshoe crab harvest. You can learn that from from the website. Um, well, we'll definitely link to, to your website in our um, show notes here. Those are all the questions we have. Um, just wanted to thank you for your time and for um, lending us some of your insights into this really interesting topic. It's I just find it fascinating because it ties together so many different coastal issues, kind of fisheries policy, different societal issues like COVID vaccines, you know, highly migratory and endangered species, and then just the idea of kind of 
more ecosystem-based management in this um, ARM framework you were discussing. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much, David. So we'll look forward to hearing from our ECU All Swell team next month. But until then, where there's a will, there's a wave.